0: hello and welcome to the talk jitsu podcast um i'm your host joey no jordan or mike here with me today but i do have an awesome guest i have mr greg souder's um yeah i'll let you introduce yourself
1: okay cool what's going on guys i'm coach greg souder's i run a gym out of rockville maryland in the united states called standard jiu-jitsu uh
0: yeah so greg is i i guess i'm gonna say uh, maybe a slightly controversial or popular figure in the jiu-jitsu community um, he's basically the pioneer of what uh, a lot of people call the ecological approach um, to learning, uh, and especially the pioneer of bringing that into the grappling scene in jujitsu. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Um, we're not going to go too in-depth on the ecological approach itself. Uh, we're going to give a brief synopsis for you people who've never heard of it. But if you want more information, Greg's done a ton of podcasts. They're all fantastic. Um, search his name in Spotify or apple music or whatever you'll find tons of them listen to them they're all great um but we're really going to try and build off that today and go a little deeper for those of you who don't know this is something i've been trying to employ to the best of my abilities uh in my own gym and i've got a whole bunch of questions for greg that i've kind of got from my own experience and from listening to him talk so yeah i'll let you uh take the floor can you just give like a brief explanation of what the ecological approach is
1: for sure so the ecological approach is a theoretical framework first put forth by a researcher in the 1960s named J.J. Gibson. Um, In his theoretical framework, he was trying to understand why behavior emerges and how behavior emerges, and he tried to push forward this idea of direct perception. Direct perception is the idea that uh, organisms interact directly with their environment, meaning all the information that we need to act, move, create new behaviors is present for us in the environment. Uh, It is not impoverished. It does not have to be interpreted. As long as an organism is communicating directly with its environment through interaction, again, all the information they're picking up to create and find opportunities for action are there present. And that is what guides the emergent quality of behavior. And that's a simple explanation. I mean, there's a lot more to it. Uh, That view since the 1960s has been pushed forward, argued, debated, um, you know, both positive and negative. So anyway, we use this idea as a our starting framework for creating sound jujitsu practices
0: awesome uh yeah so like just for the people who don't know how does that change a practice how does it look i know most people who listen probably come from a gym that uses like a standard ip style method where you show up maybe you do some shrimps and cartwheels or whatever the fuck down the mat and yeah waste your time uh and then they get shown a technique they try and repeat it like mimes or mimics as many times as they can. And then maybe if they're lucky, they roll at the end. So how does this method look a little different?
1: Okay, well, the first thing is it just it takes uh, context as the most important piece of why a movement is what it is. So, for example, we don't move in a vacuum. Humans move relative to their intention for movement. So the reason this is important is because we want to put the athlete back in the environment as a way for them to start acquiring skill. Like, for example, if we're working, uh, let's say anything from the top position in jujitsu, no movements uh, have any sense or have any relevance outside of the resistance you're going to receive from a bottom player as you're trying to perform tactics on them. So what this suggests is that we should remove any training protocols that take the student out of the live environment where they're experiencing real resistance as a way to acquire new skill. So again this the implication here is that all of our practice design should be live and against unscripted and uncooperative resistance because that's the context in which movements matter.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good description. Um, uh, Just to give a quick clarification for listeners. I know this. I've listened to hundreds of hours of Greg talk. Um, I know this. I'm trying to kind of get uh him to give it just a brief description for you guys. So again, if you have any questions on that, there's a lot in um his other content. But I kind of want to build off now. So the first co- question I get, I'm going to ask a question. It's a little disingenuous. I don't believe this, but I just want to clarify for the people. Uh, This is something I get asked a lot. What's the difference between positional sparring and task-based games? So the games that you would use in your method to develop these skills.
1: Well, task-based games is a shortcut language used to describe how we're orienting these small little mini games that we're creating in a practice room. Actually, task-based games, I think that original original little piece uh, came out as, uh, as a uh, thing between me and Kit Dale. So I think I said it on a podcast and all of a sudden Kit Dale came out with a product called Task-Based Games. So um, that's fine. I think it's good language. It's an easy way to kind of uh, tell people what we're doing with these little mini games. But the the real theory that I'm using to create these games is the constraints-led approach. Uh, that is a better way to describe quote, task-based games. The idea is that we constrain the environment, meaning we remove opportunities for action or opportunities for certain movement solutions to emerge. Um, so it sort of, Uh, parameterizes the the, um, student's search space. So as they're interacting with their player, we constrain the environment or remove options for action to get them to search uh, specific areas to create uh, specific outcomes. Uh, and And the way this differs from situational sparring is situational sparring is just that. We're going to spar from this situation, period. So an example of situational sparring would be something like, we're going to start in the mounted position today. Top player wins if they submit bottom player. Bottom player wins if they recover their guard or reverse the position. That would be an example of situational sparring. Situational sparring assumes knowledge, meaning students who do a situational sparring round must already have skills built in order to do that those rounds. The constraints that approach or a task-based games round would be where we put someone in the mounted position, but we would give them very human-centric task goals, like for example, use your connections, your bodily structure and your movement any way that you can to hold the bottom player down. No matter what else happens, stay on top and hold bottom player down. Bottom player, your job is to use your hands to push the top player off of you. You give them something very specific to do. Um, that's relevant to anybody walking in off the street or relevant to anyone without any previous jujitsu knowledge. And then we build jujitsu knowledge through experiencing, uh, uh, different constraints and different positions and situations.
0: Yeah. So even outside of the obvious benefits of like, uh, the way this teaches people to learn this is solves one problem that i always had when i first started teaching was you know you'd start a class the old way the traditional way of teaching and uh you'd tell people all right we're gonna start and mount and i'm looking to get a kimura and new people who come in off the street they're like what the fuck is a mount what am, why what am i doing here I yeah they're like, i don't even understand the the terminology you're using so then you end up spending with these people the first like couple classes kind of just going through the names of positions and moves and like this is this this is this whereas Uh, I really like this approach, especially for new people. I can put them in a position and say, just do this. Just push this guy off you. Everyone understands, push this guy off you. Or you know, if you're on the bottom, maybe I'm saying, you're going to try and keep your feet in front of you and your partner. That's a task that most people can understand how to do. They don't really need to understand grappling uh, deeply to understand how to just keep your feet in front of someone. It's a very simple instruction. So I think this is like, uh, it solves a lot of problems at once. Um, Well, the
1: thing is, is we have to start with solving problems because we can't teach our students about things they're not yet facing. So we want to create very human problems. Uh, What we have to understand about uh, any given skill or any given sport, grappling in this case, is that we can't start with mechanics. We have to start with origins. Why and when did the mechanics emerge? That's what we start with. So, for example… All the tactics we use from the mounted position are basically dealing with one of four things that people do to get off the bottom. Limb extension, this is when people push on people to create space. Limb retraction, this is when we bring our limbs back in front of someone to then push or defend the position that we're in. We have basing, this is when we put points of contact on the floor to move ourselves more forcefully. Uh, and then rotation. So we need to teach our students, we need to put our students in a situation where they can feel those four problems. Again, limb extension, limb attraction, rotation, and basing. So when they get to experience those things, we can give them tasks to solve those four problems as they present. But they need to be presented first. That's the context in which the movement will develop. But without that context and talking about the solution first, this would be like – I've used this analogy before. Some people like it, some people don't – learning uh, mathematical processes by just looking at solutions. So – uh, it doesn't really work like that. we got to present the problem first, allow the student to experience it, and then we shift, shift the focus of our students' intention attention relative to uh, how they're facing the problem.
0: Oh, I love that. I love that analogy. I come from a, a math background, so that relates very heavily to me where like when you're trying to teach someone math, you don't just show them a bunch of equations with an answer and then say, there, now you've learned how to do this. People look at that and go, I, I don't understand what happened here at all. I-, I see a number. Maybe I can memorize that solution to that specific problem, but... You're not teaching people how the process of actually figuring out how to get to the right answer. Uh,
1: well, and here's what's interesting, and I think this kind of muddies the water a little bit. Our ability to abstract something that already exists is an attribute. Some people have that cognitive ability. Some, some people can look at something that already exists, and they can abstract the invariance. They can determine why that exists. That is an attribute. We can't assume that everybody learns like that. Right? It's like, let's say we see a movement pattern in jiu-jitsu that requires flexibility and, and we didn't know we didn't see that flexible nature of the person who created that movement solution. Then we try to teach it to people who are inflexible uh, in that specific way, then we would be, you know, trying to, you know, force something upon someone that they don't have an attribute to do. So we have to ask ourselves, how can we get things to emerge in students and new learners that aren't, quote, attribute driven? Um, so we have to be careful anytime that we, we see some phenomena somewhere and try to implant it on everybody else. So again, just because one person's able to abstract complex ideas, uh, from, you know, certain phenomena doesn't mean that everybody can.
0: I think that's, uh, really helpful for a lot of people to remember is that different people have different attributes. Like, uh, our co-host who's not here today, Jordan, he's, uh, we started around a similar time and I'm, I'm kind of an idiot sometimes. So like for me, I had a hard time with that, but Jordan's the kind of guy who like, if he sees something he can just do it he just seems to understand he's very good at like you said just like abstracting these things out of situations whereas i don't have that ability uh i don't have that attribute nearly the way he does so um you know he got better a lot faster than i did partly because you know we were training in a gym environment where that just really benefited him um his ability to do that was a huge help
1: For sure. I mean, we do have to understand that people have different um, cognitive processes going on that we are unaware of. You know, there's a black box in there. I don't know what you're experiencing. You don't know what I'm experiencing. And so we can't assume that everyone's experiencing the same thing. What we do know, however, is that people interact with their environment, and they interact relative to the context in which um, their interaction with the environment is taking place. So at least we can stay true to that because we know that that's happening for everybody.
0: So in the context of like the constraints-based approach. How does this scale for new students and beginners? So I'll give a little context for my question. Obviously, people know when a new student comes in, if you're using an IP method, you show them a pretty simple, like two, three step move and hope they can get it. And for an advanced student, you can start showing things that are like five, six steps, more advanced, complicated motions. How do these uh, I'm going to say games just because it's easy language for me to use. Um, How do these games scale from someone who's brand new to someone who's maybe like a brown or black belt and really trying to develop like deeper skills?
1: For sure. So the scaling is relative to a few different things. We can manipulate time to increase scale of difficulty. We can manipulate partner selection to increase scale of difficulty. We can also manipulate complexity of task to increase just to scale difficulty. So if we're working with, let's say a beginner, a brand new person, and we want them to teach them anything from any top position, it would be as simple as, like I said before, stay on top and hold your partner down. And we can express this in a myriad of top positioning. We can start in an arm lock breaking position, for example, and work on staying on top of holding your partner down. we can work on any variation of that arm lock from top position and work on staying on top and holding our partner down. We can work at any chest to chest top alignments. So you get the point, right? Stay on top and hold your partner down. But at, with an advanced player, say you're working with a brown belt, you could start with, of course, that simple task where you could take it for granted because they are a brown belt. By that point, <laughs> they should know how to stay on top and hold people down. But we could have them create different, more abs- uh, complex scenarios. Like um, you have to create any head and arm attachment before you work to submission from this alignment. Or you have to um, get this specific grip before you can do anything uh, f- uh, ap- thereafter. Um, we, you know, things like that. You could just make the task focus more complex, make the goals that they're trying to reach more difficult.
0: Awesome. I mean, that uh, that really kind of. Um jives with what i've been trying to do like uh, last night we were working on some mount stuff and we were playing a game where partner on the bottom is trying to keep their elbows nice and tight down by the hips keep their partner low and i said the top player's goal here is just to put your partner's arm in extension i need to separate it from the ribs i want to get it basically above their head and isolated and for the we had uh, a lot of newer people um my gym's pretty new uh, just for context so most of my students are white belts i have a couple blues and i think i've got like two purple belts. Um, So pretty simple game for the new people, get an arm above your partner's head, hold it there, keep it there, make it so he can't get it back. And then for the advanced students, I said, Hey, now if you can do that and it's no problem, now we're going to look to maybe try and get the other arm as well. If we can get both arms into extension. Uh, So for me, that's an option for, you know, new students don't have to worry about, Oh God, I got to get both of these arms and hold them smaller goals. And then for more advanced students, just making that goal harder, giving them more options, uh, letting them go deeper.
1: Yeah, for sure. I do the same thing. You, you know, we play this game in the foundations class, for example. We would play a game where top players, starting a mount, stay on top, hold your partner down. Our job is to get one of our arms under underneath one of our partner's elbows and then extend it out, connect it to the head. If you're able to extend your partner's arm and connect it to the head, you win the game. If that's too easy and you can do that, we're going to look to do the same thing with both arms. Try to get under both elbows any way that you can. Connect your hands together, putting both your partner's arms in extension. And then you can even make a third focus. If that's too easy, once you get your hands connected, advance your position to connect to the shoulder line via arm lock breaking position or chest to back contact. And so that way you can give uh, a bunch of students in a varying range of uh, skill development different challenges.
0: No, that's amazing. Um, So this is a question that's actually like super personal from my experience. because like I said, I have a pretty ver- like varied room and sometimes we got odd numbers. So uh, rather than have awkward groups of three, I'll hop in there and be someone's partner just so we can have like a, a nice even, you know, rounds when we're doing our games. And um, when I set these goals for the games, if someone doesn't have a room where you compare very similarly skilled partners, how do you ensure that like, like I'm a black belt, I'm not the world's best black belt. I'm a pretty decent black belt. And I get partnered with someone who's maybe been training two months and they have a game uh, I'm trying to find the best way to word this. How do you stop that guy from just losing every single round horribly? Uh, or do you just let him? just like, Hey, this is going to suck. You're not going to win. Yeah, exactly. So uh,
1: the experience matters. Even a horrible experience is important because we're all going to have them. So that would be a, a great way that you could teach your students the idea of patience or resilience or, uh, you know, trying to win the tiniest, smallest thing. Like imagine that two month student, could stop you for a whole round from getting underneath his elbows. That would be a great learning session for him, right? To face a high level of difficulty and accomplish just a tiny task. And people want things to be too easy. And they're like, oh, what if someone feels bad? Well, if someone feels bad from difficulty, jujitsu is probably not for them because it only gets worse. So the thing is, I, I try to urge people that dedication to your craft, effort, Facing a difficulty, failing a lot, you know, because failing and success are really just just outcomes that we can use for uh, as a future metric to what to do next. I mean, these are things we want to embrace. Um, And and the truth is, is if you are a well-developed black belt, no two month students, if you're going to work with them, is going to win no matter what you do. You know what I mean? So we have to accept it and try to make the best out of it. you know, and, and we, we could do different things. We could, we could let that new student start on top of us the whole night and give them the worst, most controlling grip we can think about. And you could say, okay, new student, just hold this, you know? So, you know, you have to yeah, be clever something... with, you have to be clever oh, with sorry. your practice design. No, no, you're good. You're good.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's something I think a lot of people like, I know we've talked, uh, me and my other co hosts on this podcast a lot about like, uh, you know, my, my own personal development is important for me. I, obviously, like I want to keep getting better at this thing that I do and teach, um, So, like, I want to get better. And one thing we've always said, like, even before I kind of really got into uh, your content and learning more about this method is, like, when I would just do free rolling with people, um, I would always just put myself in terrible spots and go, okay, I'm going to, I might get armbarred a hundred times tonight from, you know, deep armbars. But at some point, I'm going to figure out a way to deal with this and get out. And, you know, maybe it sucks. And I go home and I'm like, man, I got tapped by, like, 50 blue belts tonight. But at the end of the day, I got better because of it
1: for sure, you know, and a lot of people talk about this challenge point. So there's been a lot of research that suggests that there's this optimal point of challenge. It's like maybe uh, winning six times out of 10 or five times out of 10, something like that, you know, Uh, it's really nice for people's psychology. They tend to learn a lot. But I've experienced uh, a lot of students training in the complete opposite direction, being like 80% failure rate and 20% success rate. So an example would be my student, Noah. So Noah when he was 15 years old came into my school he's been training for 3 years now. Um he he did foundations for 3 months that's it. And then he got all excited without asking me and signed up for a competition. I've told the story a bunch. Sign up for the competition I'm like buddy you can't do that here. We have a we have a standard of behavior before you can compete under us. You have to at least train 4 days a week. And uh he you know he's only 15 he's looked all sad and I was like look don't worry about it champ. But you just bought yourself a ticket to the the comp team. So tomorrow you're going to show up and train with the comp guys. So Noah never did another foundations class. He trained two hours every night, you know, uh, five six days a week with the with you know DeAndre Gav and Trevor Romero, all the best guys in my room, and got slaughtered. Like I don't think he won an exchange for eight months but look at him now, right? So it didn't have a negative effect on him. So I think when we're thinking about challenge for ourselves and our students, we really have to understand the psychology of our students. Some people don't perform well under that level of pressure. So maybe we might want to make sure they have a more easy rounds, but there are some people who thrive. They love the pressure. It wakes them up in the morning. It gets them back into the room with motivation the next day. So we want to have a place for that person too.
0: Yeah, that's that's awesome because I'm definitely the person who like I prefer to lose uh, most of my rounds in the gym. Most of my stuff that I do, I'll artificially make things harder for me just because I find uh like you know it's it's obviously nice to win and it's it's cool to you know get the feeling of like ah oh, I won the game it was great but uh, I find for me at least the struggles where I tend to learn the most. Um, I've never been like a particularly fast learner. Like I tell people a lot of times, man, I when I started Jiu I think I'm the only person whose coach ever like had to sit them down and be like, man, you are really bad at this. Like, are you sure you want to keep doing this? And I was like, no, like just keep beating me. Eventually I will figure this out. Um, I've always been like an analytical guy. Um, like, uh, I'll, I'll tell a little analogy. Sorry. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I like telling stories. So, uh, like, um, I, I'm a big golfer. Anyone who knows me outside the podcast, I don't think I've ever mentioned it on here, but I played a lot of golf. Um, when I grew up, uh, I started playing a little late and I kind of just taught myself how to play golf. I never got lessons or anything. Um, and I ended up getting good. I ended up making a college golf team, so I'm not bad at golf. Um, but, uh, this, when I started hearing your stuff, this really related to how I learned to golf because I would just make these constraints for myself to teach myself how to do it. And I'd watch other guys that started way before me had been doing this way longer. And you know, they're getting lessons. Their coach is trying to show them the exact motion during this. Like you have to be exactly here and move exactly. And it's like, man, that club's moving a hundred miles an hour. You think he can control whether his elbow is one inch or 1.01 inches from his ribcage? Is that's not possible. So I would just kind of, yeah, it, it's impossible. So I would just make these little games for myself and I would make them hard. Like I would make them artificially hard, uh, just because of the struggle for me. If I can make a game harder than the actual environment or context that I have to play the game. Now it's going to be so much easier for me when I actually play the game of golf. And, you know, uh, I find jujitsu a lot like that too. If I can make all my games and all my situations that I practice in artificially more difficult than a live round would be for me when I do a live round, I'm like, wow, man, this is easy. Like I don't have to worry now.
1: For sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I've done the same way. Like I've always been on the bottom of the totem pole. I've always been one of the tougher, uh, more technical guys in the room, don't get me wrong, but I used to get my fucking ass kicked. Like, you know, uh, training with JT Torres, Keenan Cornelius, DJ Jackson, uh, all these guys, man. That's who I was training with every day. And it was just brutal. Andres Brinovskis, I mean, it was just, I had these amazing training partners. Mike Fowler, Ryan Hall, Seth Smith. Like, I was training with some of the best American grapplers on the East Coast. And so it was, it was, <laughs> my, and I was injured all the time too. I, they used to call me Mr. Glass, man, just to get my fucking ass kicked. But I was getting beat up a lot. And I'm 20 years in now. And, uh, I love Jiu-Jitsu now more than ever. So, you know, and I even tell my students now, look, if I train with you and you don't try to beat me, I'll never roll with you again.
0: I love that. Yeah. That's something, uh, that I, I don't know if it's addressable by the ecological approach, but I find it's definitely helped since I started doing this method is I found before when I would do like free rolling or positional sparring with people, uh, especially like white or blue belts, they almost have this sense of like, Oh, you're a black belt. It doesn't matter what I do. I'm going to lose. So they just wouldn't do anything. They wouldn't try to win because they'd convince themselves, well, I can't win. So why don't I just try not to lose? Uh, whereas these games, it's like, hey, man, now there's a very clear goal for you. It's not necessarily about like, oh, if I, you know, fuck up from this position, he's going to take my back. And then I have to spend three minutes with this guy on my back. Cool. Well, no, we'll just restart in this position. Like you're going to get to practice. So try, try to beat me, please.
1: Well, because they have a focus that's more than what you are, who you are, what technique you're trying to practice. Now they have a, they have a method for engagement. So if they know that, you know, once someone connects to them, the first defensive maneuver we want to try to employ as a tactic is to separate connections. So now they have a point of focus that will get them somewhere. So no matter how good the person is that you're sparring, if you know that you can create more movement by separating your partner's connections, you always have something to work on. So, it, it really keeps you connected with what's happening to you at all times. And it makes the training more enjoyable because you're actually training. You have a, a an intention and you, th- this helps you focus your attention. Now you know what you should be working towards, right? And so it just, it makes it more interesting, more engaging.
0: That's a, uh, so you said something there that I want to touch on because, uh, I think I understand, but I, you've heard, said it a lot, uh, intention and attention. You said this in a lot of podcasts. Um, could you clarify, like, for any coach out there is trying to get into using this men- this method of teaching, what you mean by those uh, two terms? Because I think a lot of the big issues or questions people ask me really just seems to be like a language thing. And I know that's it's hard to avoid. I mean, we're trying to, especially you who's done a lot of research on the science here, you're trying to convey a very uh, complex scientific topic in terms that everyone can understand. So yeah, if you could just clarify those two terms.
1: So intention is just what you intend to do. So let's say we're playing a game where you start... Uh, stood on your back and you say, okay guys, your job is to break your students or excuse me, break your partner's connections and try to turn to face them. So you would tell them the connections are where their hands are touching you and where their feet are touching you. It's up to you, which you interact with first, but your job is to get rid of the connections any way that you can and turn to face your opponent. So that's the intention. Now the attention is where though you feel those connections. So when you first experience this, you might put attention to the feet, because maybe you feel those more. And so as you intend to separate connections, your attention goes to the feet. And you start working in that space. Okay, so maybe then you get, start getting strangled. Like, oh, maybe the feet aren't the connection I should be intending to, to interact with. Maybe it's the arm. So then now your attention switches. So it's still the intention of separating connections to turn to face. But your attention can shift based on what you're experiencing while trying to solve that problem. So always giving a student a clear focus of intention, i.e. knowing what to do, and a focus of attention where to look gets them engaged in the environment with what's happening to them in real time.
0: Yeah, that's a- amazing. Thank you for that. Because I, it's one of those, you know, uh, especially as people get in, when I first started listening to your stuff, some of the terms, I was like, I don't really know what he means by that. And I'm like, I, I want to understand. I want to agree. But the, the language was uh, the big barrier. Um, it's I'll so be funny.
1: Oh, good. No, good. Please keep
0: finishing. Oh, I was going to be, I'll be honest. I first heard about you. We have a discord for this podcast and someone mentioned your stuff. And of course they said like, uh, I'm sure you're, you're tired of hearing this, but like, yeah, this guy doesn't teach techniques at his gym. And you know, my first inclination was like, well, that sounds like bullshit, but like, you know, I, is uh, you know, like, I'm sure you get this from a lot of guys where they're like, that can't be true. Like that can't be real. He's gotta be lying. Uh, but I like to think of myself as a pretty open-minded guy. And I was like, all right, send me the podcast you got with the guy. I want to hear what he has to say. And when I first started listening, I kind of went in with um, almost the intention of like proving you wrong. Like, I'm going to listen to what this guy says and explain why he's wrong and why you have to do it the way I've been doing it. And that didn't really go so well because everything you said on the thing kind of really um, meshed with, what I had thought. And I was like, damn, maybe I've been going about this wrong. And I almost had like a little like existential crisis as a coach where I'm like, what is my role? Like, what am I doing? So like, um, could you just explain like briefly, like your opinion on like, how does the role of a coach change from the IP method where the coach is kind of supposed to be like some grand emperor wizard who knows all the secret techniques and everyone has to pay him money to learn these uh, versus now like the ecological approach where I just feel like A guy in a room kind of like, I was using an analogy. I don't know if this makes any sense, but I tell my guys in my room, I'm almost like a Sherpa. If you know anything about like mountain climbing, like, yeah, I'm not taking you to the top of the mountain. I'm not showing you any magic fucking helicopter ride to the top. I'm just going like, hey man, this is probably the way you should go if you want to get to the top of this thing. So like, let's all go together. We're, we're a team now.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, So I think there's a lot there. So the first thing is it's good to be skeptical of people who say, I would know I don't want anyone to take what I say on face value I want to be challenged that's the whole point so first challenge yourself gain the information when you get the information sit with it for a while think about it try it you know try to beat it that's the point you know look at the research look at the, the scientists who I'm pulling this information from engage with them because you can't resist or deny or prove something wrong that you don't understand so you first have to go about understanding it and that is healthy skepticism is a healthy thing all right I'm skeptical of everything like I don't just buy into shit like i try to figure it out and understand it first. Okay. So I think that's a good thing. I don't want anyone to take what I say on face value. The second thing is, this is why I let everyone come visit my gym for free because I want people to experience what I'm doing. I want them to come to my gym and see it firsthand, experience my classes firsthand, experience my students firsthand. You will leave an evangelist because you will see that I am doing exactly what I say I'm doing. There is no marketing. There is no salesmanship. There's no bullshit. I'm doing exactly what I'm saying on these podcasts and my students are performing exactly the way that I'm saying that they can okay so that that's that now uh,
0: just sorry a quick little interjection there i got to uh experience one of your students at the adcc toronto and i would like no part of that again if i can avoid it so uh yeah for people who don't know his students are fantastic they are very good grapplers i got to watch them all day at the toronto adcc they cleaned up um yeah if if you're skeptical at all about the quality of students that this method can deliver uh definitely Check out his gym. Watch some of the content on his guys or go roll with them. They are fantastic grapplers.
1: Yeah, so I had three out there, are home homegrown, and three out there who were not. Some my homegrown people out there were Noah, Romero, and Brian Guevara. Okay, so they all came from me. The three that, did, that came from other gyms previously was Gavin, DeAndre, and Sid. So- you could see that even I can change students that come to me with previous experience, and I can grow students that don't have them. I'm capable of doing both things. And, uh, you know, people always, oh, you know, they always talk about DAD and Gavin. But no one, and often people forget about Alex. I have a student, Alex Nguyen, who's a female, who's won the world, so I think, four times. She's won PANs four or five times at every belt level <laughs> at first it was gi and no gi so teen, uh you know uh, teen pans when she was 14 years old uh she won that juvenile one and two blue belt world she won that in the gi on. she won purple belt uh no gi uh she uh, got second place purple belt gi with all world she won pans at, uh both um beating girls like birana St. Marie she's you know what I mean it's like I have students. Alex is a black belt world champion. She was my first one. So anyway, people say crazy shit, but yeah, my students are pretty good. Now let's go to the existential crisis because I had it too. So I came from IP deliberate practice, high rep drilling. I came from that for 12 years. That's what I did. And I was even invested in the IP process. Anders Ericsson is a researcher who I was reading about back then. So he's the researcher who came up with deliberate practice. Um, And so I bought a tome of all his uh, white papers. I read all his ideas and I was trying to implement them. But even Anders Ericsson had a problem. Um, He, when they basically uh, constrained uh, all the studies for what was causing change in the athlete, they found out that uh, deliberate practice could only account for 24% of the learning that was happening. And there was this huge other subset of things that they could not identify as what was causing learning to happen, which is interesting. And so... Uh, you know, ecological psychology, I think fills that gap by the way. Uh, but anyway, so I was big in Anders Ericsson. I was big into high rep drilling. There are no two, there are no two people on team Lord urban that drilled more than I did. I was completely bought in anyway. So when I f- left the school and I, and, I, and I first started teaching on my own and I was reading this new material, I had an existential crisis. I was like, Oh shit. If it's all about the environment, it's all about perceiving what's in your environment. What the hell is my job? What do I do? And then when I tried to start implementing this, I realized, Oh shit, there's a lot that I don't know. So I had to, turn everything back around. I had to relook at my own jujitsu. I had to relook at how I was designing practice. I had to relook at how I was talking to my students. I had to change completely. I had to take 12 years of learning and experience and I had to turn it around and I had to try to apply this new method whole cloth. I had nobody to ask. I had nobody to talk to. I was just reading white papers, reading what the researchers were saying and trying to come up with a new method to put it all together. So I went through the same thing.
0: And it, so it's hard. It, it, uh, it really does affect you as a coach, you know? But uh, I think at the end of the day, I mean, you probably feel the same way as I am. Where like, even if I have to really change the way I do it and maybe I have to take a job that's a little less like prestigious or a role that's less prestigious, like at the end of the day, all I want is what's best for my students. I just want to make these guys good.
1: The pre- so there's a difference between a knowledge teller and a coach. John Danner is a great knowledge teller. He could, he could, you could put him on a podium and he could give a symposium and every position it's ever been invented in Jitsu and why it matters. And he would be the king of that. Now, he's a good coach also, but his coaching has to do with the change he's able to make in his athletes. And so that's that's what we do. We're guides. We create a practice environment that's rich with information that our students can pick up to create new behaviors and to create new skills. If you're able to do that for a wide range of people, you're a good coach. That's the top of the hill for us. It's not to be a knowledge teller. It's to make a change in our athletes.
0: I had a, uh, a professor a long time ago um, who said something really interesting. That's always kind of stuck with me. It, I don't know if you feel the same way, but he said, I actually can't. You can't teach a human anything. All I can do is give you the conditions needed for you to teach yourself.
1: I agree. Um, I actually, I agree with that
0: 100%. Yeah. And that to me was like, at the time, I really didn't understand it. It didn't make any sense. And now it's probably like 10 years later. Uh, something like that now. And now it's finally starting to like, I understand it. I'm not actually like implanting information in your brain, like someone typing into a computer program. All I'm doing is giving you uh, an environment, a situation in which you get to learn for yourself. And I guess the difference between like maybe a good coach and a bad coach is how well I create that environment and how easy I make it for you to learn.
1: I agree. I agree. Yeah. You want to make the conditions you know, full and available, so students can maximize the hour, the two hours that they're with you. Um, so, can they, they can acquire new skills? That's
0: okay. that's our job. Um, Speaking of John Danner, I did, I'm going to try and uh, go down a little rabbit hole here before we get back onto the questions I'd written. I just want to talk because this is something that people say a lot, and I think is um, I think it's a, a faulty argument where people say things like, you know, Greg, students are good, but. Uh, They're losing to people who use the old method, like losing to one of John Danaher's students, or Gordon Ryan's the best in the world. He's using the old method. And my response to that, like, I just want to, I'll give you my opinion and I want to see if you agree or you want to build off of it is like, um, it's a little disingenuous because all of these people are doing some form of ecological training, whether they know it or not, whether they're employing it or not.
1: So you said fix the fixed language there. There's no, I don't mean to do this, but I have to. There's no such thing as ecological training. Okay. That's just a weird thing that people are saying. The ecological approach suggests that perception is direct, meaning that we interact directly with our environment. So if that's true, it's happening all the time. All practices are ecological. Anytime that a person interacts to create new movements or interact with, with the sport, they're, they're engaging in direct perception. If direct perception is in fact what's going on. So what people are trying to say is that they're engaging in practices that assume this to be true and create lesson plans and practice designs that, um, that utilize this approach. That's all that means. So again, even students who are listening to John Danaher give the perfect explanation for the perfect alignment for the perfect Kimura, they still have to go into the live environment and try to make that happen. So if I'm assuming direct perception is true and the arguments that uh, are presented by the the science seems to be that where we're headed in our understanding. So that's happening even student even to students who are trying to optimize what they're doing based on some top down information given to them from a
0: coach. Okay, yeah, that's definitely like kind of what I was trying to say, just with very poor language. Uh, like oh, it's I said, okay. I
1: just I, this is it's not you. It's that uh, that's actually a p- point of frustration for me because uh, I you hear this all over the internet. They're like, oh, you know. Uh, are there any schools that do ecological training? It's like, that's just a poor understanding of what the hell is happening. I just, it bugs me uh, because it muddies the water and people aren't, ha- can't have clear discussions about what's happening because it turns into, well, is, is ecological practice just a marketing tactic? Well, do you think, you know, these researchers are, tr- what are they selling in marketing? They're trying to understand natural and come up with an explanation for it so that we can use it to, you know, better our science and technology. Like, what are you talking about? This isn't a sales and marketing enterprise. This is an yeah, information gathering enterprise. So anyway.
0: I find ecological approach to be like, for me, that was a hard one to get over kind of what that is. But I really like the term constraints-led learning or constraints-based learning. That for me, I like that's the method I use. I know that that's a part of the ecological approach to education or like you know ecological dynamics. So for me, I tell people like, hey, we use a constraints-led approach. I'm not as deep in the science. So I don't know the rest of the terms as well, but that I know. I can use that.
1: Well, for sure. Just to clear up some language to help you guys out. So the ecological approach is literally just referring to uh J.J. Gibson's view of direct perception. He, he's... He's the one who coined that term. Okay, so we're just, we're just, when we say ecological approach, we're just talking about any approach to learning that assumes direct perception. That's what that means. So the constraints-led approach is a method within that framework that assumes direct perception. Differential learning is another method within that framework that assumes direct perception. They are both part of an ecological approach to skill acquisition. So for those of you who are listening, that's a clarification on those terms.
0: Okay, so just to make sure I'm clear, like the ecological approach would be like the whole picture whereas uh the constrained led approach is like a part of that. It's something under the umbrella of ecological approach. It's
1: a way we're manipulating that. So again again, we're, again ecological approach is just assuming direct perception. The constrained led approach is how we're manipulating direct perception. The diff- okay. differential learning is how we're manipulating direct perception.
0: And just to, you know, I I know some people I know we probably take it for granted, but direct perception, um, as far as I understand, direct perception is basically your ability to like uh, see something in your environment and perceive information about that thing. So like I was trying to explain this to my wife last night and I kind of I held up my wrist and I said, grab my wrist and she just grabbed it with her hand. And I said, you didn't have to think about what angle to turn everything at. You just perceived my hand. That's a grabbable thing put hand clasp. I know how to do that. And then I would change the angle of my wrist and have her grab it in different ways. And like, it's all the same thing. You're perceiving it the same way. It's just, uh, like, um, cause we were kind of comparing it to like an IP method. I didn't have to tell you how to adjust your body for every angle of my wrist. You perceive that from the environment and did it internally.
1: That's right. So it's really interesting because basically what, um, JJ Gibson was trying to understand is this thing, uh, this, this, this array, this, this structural information that's coming into our perceiving parts, uh, that tells us what's happening in front of us. And we use that to basically pick up values that allow us to act out on them. So uh, think about, this is really interesting. Something as simple as taking a ball and throwing it at a target at a distance at a specific speed. Now, here's, what's crazy the value of speed, the value of distance, the, the weight of the ball, all this is being perceived and you can hit a target with accuracy. And if I asked you, what angle did you throw it? What speed was it? Um, when did you release? What was the shape of your hand? You don't have access to any of that. However, your body just did it all. It, it, it took what was in front of it. It took all the information from everything that was part of the context in which you do the ball and it organized it into an opportunity for action and then you reached your intended target. That is deeply interesting to me. Uh, it took no computational process. It happens too quickly.
0: Yeah, and that, this to me like relates right back to what I was saying, my golf experience. Like a golf swing lasts a second, if that, from backswing to foreswing. And I'd always have other kids be like, they'd ask me a detail about a swing or something. I'd be like, I'm going to be honest with you, man. I don't know. I just hit the thing and I can tell based on the result if I did it well or not. And if it went well, I'm going to try to, as best I can, recreate the conditions that made it go well. Uh, I'm not trying to memorize little details about angles and things. I just know this is the outcome I need. This is I'm going to attempt a bunch of different ways to get there. And eventually I'm going to figure out the right way to get there. And it's going to stick with me better because I figured this out. I actually learned this way to get there as opposed to like someone trying to basically take a stick and beat an answer into me.
1: Well, I think the Um. difficult part is I think. The mind, and again, I'm saying that in quotations because we can get philosophical on what we mean by the mind, but either way, it seems to have two processes that we're aware of, you know, using our intention to act out onto the world but then abstracting what just happened. And a lot of us feel like that's the same thing. So let's say, for example, I'm a golfer for 20 years and I, I, I deeply think about swinging and hitting balls and stance. And so after the fact, I come up with these reasons and these explanations of what I think I'm doing and what I think is happening, which is an abstraction from what's actually occurring. So the abstraction you're pulling out of the environment is a model of the environment. So we know that all models are not real because they're a representation of realness. They it's very difficult to replicate in an abstraction. And the reason we know this is because when it's studied, when elite performers are asked, how do you do this? What, what are you doing with your elbows, wrists, hands, head, eyes? And they use tracking software to look at where eyes, hands, elbows are going. They're not going in the way that the the person is saying that they are. It's completely doing something different. So the things that these people are saying they're doing when they're put up to scrutiny, they're not actually doing. So again, it's a trick of the mind. It's 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 an illusion that we experience uh in our awareness. So anyway, so if we just say, hey, I, I guess uh our abstraction is impoverished, we should probably stay true to what's actually happening and just let things emerge how they do.
0: Well, I think that's actually a fantastic point because um I do this like I don't know if there's a lot of value in it. I like doing it for me, um, and I highly encourage my students to do it because I think it does have value is recording our grappling. Um we take a lot of footage. Um, and it's always interesting to me. I'll take a footage of maybe one of my guys who wants to compete and we'll do, uh, so one of the ways I offer private lessons, I I don't really like teaching that because as I'm trying to move into this, the private lesson scene kind of doesn't make as much sense to like, I'm going to show you a bunch of techniques. I know this isn't how we learn. So, um, one of the things I offer is like, Hey man, record a bunch of videos of you rolling and let's go over it together. Let's see what happened. And it's really interesting to me when people will say like, yeah, I thought in this role I did this and I'll be like, that's not even remotely close to what you thought you did. Uh, and it happens to me, too. Like, I'm I'm trying to learn to wrestle. We got a good wrestling coach at our gym. Uh, and I was recording around the other day. And I shot what I thought was a picture-perfect fireman's carry. I'm like, this could go on a cover of Wrestling Magazine. This was the most beautiful takedown anyone has ever shot. I watched the video, and I was like, this is disgust my eyes hurt watching what i just saw it worked i got the outcome but i was like oh my god this is not what i thought i did or looked like at all
1: yeah no i i i think it's first of all i think video watching is good so a lot of people think that when we talk about the ecological approach the constraints that approach differential learning that we're saying that we can't watch we can't copy we can't mimic these are all part of the natural learning environment we do this as organisms right uh, what I avoid is what we tell ourselves about what we do. But either way, the things we watch, the ideas we discuss, the things that we copy, all are ways to enhance our perception. They change. They can change our focus of intention. They could. We could see something we never knew was possible and then try intend to try to copy it. That will help us pick up new information to potentially get something that looks like it. But it could also change our search parameters. So if we watch ourselves do something on a video and we thought we had this perfect thing, but we realized we we acted in a different moment than we thought we did, we could maybe say, hmm, maybe I should focus my attention here next time. So we can use it as a way to shift our intention and attention. But again, we don't really know what's happening. We don't have access to that information, but it's not wrong to watch, to copy. Again, I think this is all, this is all good learning.
0: No, that's beautiful. Cause that's uh, another question I get from my students sometimes It's like, uh, if we learn, uh, through this method and constraints based approach, like what's the value of something like an instructional? And I always like to tell them it's a, an, an idea to, oh, he solved this problem in that way. Maybe next time I'm in that situation, I could try and apply a solution that's somewhat similar to the one he did. Like I tell people it's not try to copy what and this is a big pet peeve of mine is that I watch a lot of these instructionals and none of these fucking people do the things the way they say they're doing them. Or if they even do them at all, I'll see a guy make a, an arm bar instructional. He's got one arm bar in his entire career. And I'm like, what the fucking hell is this guy? And he's like, yeah, I do this all the time. Like I have watched a hundred of your matches. You have never done this thing that you just said you do all the time. So I find instructionals for me are more just like a, you know, how, what's a potential solution to a problem that maybe I don't even realize is a potential solution. And then I can try and implement that. And whether I like it or not, uh, that's, I'll figure that out when I do the games and do the tasks around that.
1: Yeah. I used to, I was obsessed with instructions, man. Like I'm obsessed with information. I love to deep dive into the context of my medium. I love grappling. So even if I disagreed with somebody like back in 2006 for example, Fernando Pontes, IKA Margarita put out a $120 DVD that was like four DVDs long. It was the biggest waste I've ever spent money on except for this one thing about how cross chokes with the gion are not about your elbows but your wrists. That simple idea made me a strangling machine. Like I was like, "Oh, that was worth all $120." But everything else was just trash. So we can abstract invariants or ideas about what we could or couldn't do from instructionals. But the problem with the current model of instruction is one, it's step-by-step. It's first you do this, then you do this, then you do this. That doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a step-by-step process in our environment. There are things that cause other things to happen, but when where and to the degree at which this happens is, is wildly chaotic. Okay. As far because it relying on what your opponent does and we can't predict that. Now, if we use invariants, we can gain what we call physical certainty. I.e., if I grab this part of his arm and try to manipulate it towards this end, I'm gonna—I can say with some degree of certainty that I can. But that's as deep as we can get for as optimization goes. And so the second issue is that these DVDs, these step-by-step processes, assume optimization. They're like oh, this is the perfect angle for an americana. This is a perfect angle for. Uh, a Kimura. And what they do is they have the uh, uh, chasing these false optimizations when optimization really is just how effective is your movement? How consistent is your movement? You know? So it's just, they're, they're not, op- awesome. they're not optimized. We can abstract great ideas from them, but they're, they're just not optimized as a learning tool.
0: No, I definitely say, and I tell my students like, man, they, they definitely have value, but you, uh, don't use them in the way that a lot of people do where they think if i watch an instructional suddenly i'll be able to do all these magic techniques that i couldn't do before uh watch them as a, an idea um i'm i'm really big with my students on like uh i know this is a word that gets me in trouble a lot cuz people will say they don't know what i mean and i think maybe it's a language thing again like i'm not a language expert i'm trying my best no one taught me how to do any of this stuff uh so i'm kind of you know guessing as I go, but we're really big on like conceptual stuff at our gym. Whereas uh, instead of telling them like, you know, you want to put an arm at a certain angle, I'll be like, Hey man, what's the most important thing for an arm bar? I need to control the shoulder and I need to put the arm in extension. And at some point now I need to apply a breaking force to that. Um, I don't really care what your arm bar looks like or how you achieve those goals, just that you achieve those goals. And if watching instructional shows you a potential way to achieve those goals, then sure, you can try that. But don't think that by watching it, you're going to be an expert on it or all of a sudden be able to do something you couldn't do before.
1: Yeah. Well, I think the difficulty is really in translating these concepts to uh, pragmatic practice design. So, the thing is, is, the concepts are great. A lot of people say they teach them, but they don't, the first of all, they're not even saying concepts. are like, oh, we do conceptual learning. And then you watch them go through a step by step arm lock and you're like, where's the fucking concept? Uh, or they'll say something ridiculous that has nothing to do with what they're actually talking about. So in arm lock specifically, we could say that the concept here is that uh, all arm locks relate to our ability to access and attach to the shoulders. And that's manipulated through middle joint positioning, or in this case, elbow positioning. So the concept here is that there's a relationship between elbow positioning and shoulder access. So then what we would do pragmatically is we create task or practice design where we, uh, inform ourselves on tasks that allow us to manipulate our partner's elbow to move it out of the way to gain access to the shoulder. And so that's how we take a concept and make it pragmatic, right? But again, we have to understand the relationships and we have to actually understand what a concept actually is. Not saying that you don't, please don't get me wrong. I'm just saying this is a word I hear all the time that people use incorrectly.
0: No, this is actually something I, I, uh, I tend to be the very controversial person on this podcast. I'm I'm really not afraid to piss people off. And I think there's a lot of coaches who say things like we use concepts when they don't have a fucking clue what the concepts are, but they know if they say the word, people will be like, oh, I also don't know what the concepts are because I don't do the sport and I'm just trying to start to learn. So I'll just believe that this guy knows this. And it's I find it really disingenuous. Like uh, I think you've used this example before and I've been using this for years, which is uh, the double leg takedown. And I'll see so many coaches say they use concepts and they show a double leg and they're like, their knee has to hit the mat. They need that little knee pound on the mat. And I'm like, do you even understand why you're doing that? Do you even. But they will be like, I need to get below his hips. I'm like, but do you even understand why you have to drop to your knee? Like, why are you showing this? The concept here is I got to get my hips below this guy's hips. If he's standing upright. I might not even need to level change. Like you watch uh, great wrestlers like you know uh for MMA like George Saint Pierre, he has never touched his knee to the mat to do a double leg takedown. You don't need this. And I think there's a lot of gyms that think the concept is that my knee hits the mat. I'm like, that's not a concept.
1: Knee hitting the mat is a mechanic. Okay, it's a mechanic. Exactly, yeah, 100%. it's a it's it's a, it's a result of what the situation calls for it. You have to align your body in a specific way to reach a specific outcome. And people, if, if you understand constraints. Then you'd understand why the knee hits the mat. So if you watch, so first of all, the knee hitting the mat, the penetration step, step largely comes from collegiate wrestling or folk style wrestling. Mm-hmm. You see it more often than in other other grappling sports, and you have to ask yourself why. Well, in collegiate wrestling, uh, leg tackles are scored highly. Okay, so if leg tackles are the central focus, not only in the sport but the culture of the sport, then they're going to be they're going to happen often. So the best way that we defend ourselves against leg tackles is to get as close to the ground as we can, so we can keep our legs and hips as far from our partner as we can. So this would create a low stance in both players. So when, you're, when your partner's really low and you have to get below him, but you still have to accelerate forward, hitting your knee allows you to both be low but still produce drive. So it's constrained by the constraints of the environment. It, it It's why the knee touch emerges. It has to do with bodily height. Like height and weather fighting. So, this is why you don't see it in mixed martial arts. When you want to punch, you don't want to h- hunch over because you don't have as much power as if you're standing up a little more upright. So, because we're both standing upright and we're punching, a penetration step doesn't require knee drive because you can access the hips uh, only by lowering your level a tiny bit. So, that's why it emerges that way. So, if you understand constraints, you can understand why mechanics emerge,
0: right? 100%. this is what I tell my students. And, like, I get pretty passionate about, like, uh, and this is a hot take. I don't this is my opinion, please. Anyone listening to the podcast, this is not Greg's opinion. I think most coaches are really shitty at their job. Um, Oh, that's my opinion too. You can do Okay. Well, I'm glad we agree on that. And I, I know people get mad at me and I've, I've said some things that have gotten me some messages in Instagram from people being like, Oh, come fight my coach. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. I don't give a shit about your coach. He's, he might be a great grappler and this is our hot take, but you can be a great grappler and a really, really shitty coach. Um, those two are not intrinsically linked skills. Um, But you did say something I want to talk to you about. This is something uh, it's like kind of a question for me as a coach. Um, You mentioned why the knee pound or the penetration step emerges in wrestling as a function of like, uh, you know, leg attacks are scored very highly in wrestling. You have students who compete in a high level in IBJJF and ADCC. When you design your practices Do you change constraints or games based upon the rules of the competitions coming up? So obviously, for people who don't know, ADCC and IBJJF do have different rules. Um, They have different scoring parameters, um, which can change your prioritization of certain techniques. Obviously, certain things are not allowed in one versus the other. Do you try to optimize for any tournament? Or do you just think, like, learn good grappling, and then you can figure out how to adapt to a rule set if you're an adaptable athlete?
1: More the latter than the former. So I have a few goals for my student learning skills first. So the first thing is I teach them how to play the game. And the game, the game physically, not the ADCC game, not the IBJJF game, the game of grappling. That's attacking your opponent's periphery to gain access to center mass, putting center mass on the floor, immobilizing it, isolating and reattacking the periphery. So that's what I teach my students how to do. I teach them to do that through making, maintaining connections for the purpose of controlling distance through isolation, segmentation, immobilization, and destabilization. That's what I teach. So that's the conceptual framework that we use. And then we filter things through that. So if there's, let's say there's something like ADCC, for example, if you turtle uh, for three seconds, you can just roll over onto your back and no score. Right. So in that case, so we prioritize once the backs exposed, we keep it exposed. We don't let it touch the mat. Uh, We focus a lot on threatening while puncturing hooks just because one that's physically good grappling. If you can get behind someone, stay behind somebody, the chance that you're going to submit them and maintain control of them through an extended period of time goes up. But it also happens to fall in line with the rules of a tournament that we want to win. So in that case, they merge. But either way, we care more about the physics of grappling as they relate to physical certainty and uh, achieving the outcome of immobilization as these leads to strangula- strangulation and breaking more than anything else. So we prioritize that over everything else. And then again, we adapt to the rule set in practice minimally, just enough so that when we play the game, we're not ignorant of what the criteria is under which we're playing.
0: Okay. So it's the basically the minimal or the smallest adaptations you can make as possible to like obviously optimize for the rule set and make sure people aren't doing something that's going to get them DQ'd.
1: Yeah. Because the rule sets too specific, right? I don't, I don't want my athletes to be that specific because at first I want them to be general. I want them to play any aspect of the game top and bottom, you know, during progression, during resistance, whatever. I want them to be able to optimize their ability to play the game physically. Then and only then am I worried about the specific constraints present in the rule sets that we're going to be competing in. Um, yeah, I want them to specify, I want them to become specific later in their career, not early in their career. Too many coaches have their students become too specific too early, and then that hamstrings them into, um, you know, like tunnel development, you know, uh, like you see like these high level leg lockers, like Robert Deagle, that dude wouldn't get off his back if you paid him. Like he, he, he gonna, he's going to, he's going to lay on his back, the to attorney. He's going to talk about all the skills he's developing with passing and wrestling. But have you ever seen him do anything other than Kani Basami? I haven't. So you don't, you know, I don't want to create that type of athlete. The specialized athlete disgusts me. And I, I, I don't want my students to be that. I want them to play the whole game.
0: I think that's a, a really good piece of advice for, you know, anyone listening out there is like when you're a white or a blue belt, man, you have to learn how to do everything. Don't, I know you might be one of those people who picks up leg locks as a white belt and you're like, this is what I'm going to be good at, please. I beg you, as a coach, learn how to do everything. Um, a really interesting phrase I had another friend tell me once is: uh, "Beginners need uh, generality; they need to be good at everything." It's only when you become ad- more advanced that you can. You should really get specific on, you know, specific things and go deep on that. So that, like,
1: so the most powerful thing in our environment, as it relates to positive outcomes, is novelty. Novelty is powerful. right So if you take a stable system and you add something novel to it, you're gonna disrupt that system. So you see it happen with all these new techniques that emerge. You saw it happen in 2014 with Eddie Cummings. He disrupted the whole fucking scene. He was outside he hooking everybody. Like he would just touch legs and they were exploding or people were screaming. You know what I mean? They didn't know what to do. That novelty was so powerful, everyone now had, had to start learning that those new behaviors. They had to start exposing themselves to those new behaviors. But after that new behavior gets added to the system, it restabilizes. So it's not as powerful anymore. That novelty is reduced because it's no longer novel. All the other tactics and passing and in different scenarios, which leg locks become available are starting to again stabilize around that feature. So part of my coaching job for my students is to make them immune to novelty. We're trying to focus on invariance so we can fulfill conditions to always be progressing or resist people progressing against us. So, again, we have to be careful. Again, novelty is powerful, but we don't want to fall into the trap of winning with it. Because if, we're, if you're using only novelty and, and we're not familiar that it's the novelty that's causing the, the significant outcomes, when it becomes less novel, we're going to be stuck. So again, I make my students immune to novelty. I try to warn them against it when they're embracing it. Um, and so it's important, I think, for coaches to know that that might be a factor in why we're having success at one given time or another.
0: I think that's fantastic. Um, I'm going to ask a question. I'm pretty sure I know what your answer is going to be, but I'm assuming like you don't uh, like obviously the IBJJF has its own silly rules that I don't agree with. And I've been pretty vocal about on here, but uh, like you don't like with beginner students, like say like no leg locks or no leg entanglements for beginner students. I'm the same way. I let them do whatever you want, because like you said, novelty, if you're getting to brown belt and you've never trained leg locks, well, these are going to be extremely novel and you're going to have a very hard time dealing with that
1: correct yeah i'm not teaching ibjjf grappling i'm not teaching adcc grappling i'm teaching grappling all right so i figured we're we're taking the entire system into account and we're working from all aspects of the system
0: Uh, this is another question i gotta ask uh mostly because i really want you to convince my students i know you dropped the gi at your gym i hate the fucking gi i hate those pajamas but i got students who like it so i keep offering it for my students, can you please talk them about of why we need to drop this damn gi so that I can just go to no gi only? All
1: right. Well, you're not going to like my answer, but I'm going to give you my honest one. No, no, no. I'm going to give you my honest opinion. The gi is an accident of history. The Japanese trained with kimonos on, so we train with kimonos on. It was introduced to us by the Japanese. The tradition stuck. It became the tool that we use for the equipment that we use to grapple in that context. Great. That's fine. However because the a system tends to move towards optimization over time gi grips and specific grips constrain the environment and make the environment overly specific so what we end up learning is rather now we're not learning how to grapple anymore we're learning how to use a jacket and pants to grapple which is fine but we have to understand that is a thing in of a thing in and of itself the tool of the cloth is so powerful that it will make you overly specific as a grappler. You will no longer be a general grappler. You will be a gi grappler. Where I think no gi has more transferability, if we could even say that, across a wider range of grappling sport. Since there is no jacket you're or pants, you're using a body to control a body. Now, it has its own issues. It has its own constraints. But they're more generalized and I think easier to disrupt once attractors develop. So I think that Nogi grappling is uh, better in the long term for overall understanding of all aspects of grappling because it's less constrained by anything other than the rules of the sport you're playing and or the human body. So to me, I want to understand how a body controls a body. I don't want to understand how a jacket controls a body. I'm not interested in that anymore. Um, So if you want to really understand grappling in its less specific context, I would say Nogi grappling is the way to go
0: i've always agreed with that i mean i my gi game is basically just no gi grappling uh where i'm wearing pajamas i i don't really grip i have uh you know you said earlier that he used to call you mr glass i'm the same way man i've had so many injuries and my hands are just ruined uh from using the gis uh i basically when i do gi classes i don't i can't remember the last time i've actually like gripped a gi i just do no gi grappling in a gi and i'm like why am i even doing this why don't i just do? no gi grappling but the same isn't true for someone who does exclusively gi if you transfer to no gi your game would have to change dramatically because you can't the things you relied on are no longer there whereas my game going over to gi sure maybe it's not optimized for the rule set but at least it still functions
1: yeah for sure and think about what's interesting um, we take take a college wrestler and put him in a gi and put him in a room they still have they can still be successful against white blues and purple belts coming in off the street so, if it was so magical, why can't you it with the wrestler? Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's just, uh, to me, I think, honestly, I, it, I think it is a waste of time unless you want to specialize in jacket wrestling, then go, go for it. But, and you, or if you enjoy it, go for it, man, you know. Um, but another thing we have to consider, and this is, people don't ever talk about this. So, when you can control at a distance, you can, produ- you can produce more torque on the joints, So the fact that I can grab your lever at the very end with a strong cloth grip, I can yank the piss out of your elbows and shoulders. The fact that you have a rope around your neck, I can yank hard on your spine and on on your collar. This puts a lot of stress on the joints. Same thing with the pants. I can grab the end of your pants. I'm putting so much pressure on your knees and hips when I'm moving you around. So if you want to avoid these like torque driven injuries, um, taking the jacket off will help. Uh I think the issue with no-gi grappling is injury rate would be uh uncontrolled falling. I think that would be a little more of an issue uh slipping and falling because it's a slippery environment. But uh the the pressure on your joints I think isn't as bad.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, at the end of the day like hey, this is this is a contact combat sport. There's always going to be a risk of injury and, you know, when people get sweaty and you're moving around. I like I've had people ask me all the time, I'm sure you get it, people ask, is jujitsu safe? And I'm like as safe as something can be when you're moving around with another human body, I mean, crossing the street can be dangerous. I could slip on ice, maybe not in the southern states, but in Canada, at least you to slip on yeah. ice most no, of the time. no, for year. sure.
1: Yeah, I, that's a discussion I hate having. Like, dude, what are you talking about? There's no such thing as a free lunch, okay? You know, you can sit, and, sit in place, you'll die. Your hips and knees will wear out. It doesn't matter. If you're scared, do something else, okay? But either way, you know, you're dying. Deal with it. Hey, you're going to get hurt 100%. doing something, you're going to reach for a, you're going to be 40 and reach for a, uh, you know, a dish in a high place. And you're going to strain your back, you know?
0: Yeah, though that's uh, definitely true. Um, just to get us back. I know I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I do have a few more questions I want to get to if possible. Um, this one's for me as a coach, something I've kind of struggled with, uh, when switching this method, it's probably actually been my biggest point of struggle is like, um, let's say we're giving, uh, stream based game i'm i'm getting my students to do something with tasks and they're just not like someone's just not getting something they're they're really struggling if and or if at all i guess but at what point do you jump in and like i'm not saying teach them a technique or show them an option but what point do you like step in and maybe guide them like hey maybe uh you should try this
1: yeah i have a process uh, yeah. for this yeah.
0: okay i'd love to So do
1: that. i have rules for feedback so i believe the environment has everything that you need to need to use, but you have to know where to look. So as a coach, our initial responsibility is to inform our students intention and attention, give them something to do, help them focus where to look to do it. That's your initial job. Now, once they start getting feedback through outcome, i.e. failure or success, uh, and they come to you and they say, let's say failure, for example, Hey coach, I'm trying this thing. The first thing I ask them is what was your intention? If they can answer that, we'll go deeper. If they can't, I'll say try again. So if you don't have first an intention, no feedback will matter because it needs to be relative to something we can objectively say, this is why something happened. If if we don't know what we were trying to do, we can't start the feedback process, coach student. So first, do you know what you were trying to do? Yeah, hey, coach, I was trying to get my arm under my, uh, the, my opponent's elbow. Great. Were you successful? No. Why? As I was trying to get under his elbow, he's keeping it really tight to his body. What did you try to do to get it away from his body? Nothing. Great. Go try it again. Goes and tries it again. What'd you try? Well, I tried to dig my arm underneath his elbow, like right next to his body. Were you successful? Yes. Great. Keep doing it. So. What I try to do is I just try to keep reinforming their intention and attention. But I have to know that they're engaged in the process. They have to be able to continuously tell me what their intention was, what was the outcome of their intention, what problems were they facing, and what did they do about it. And I keep cycling them through that. It's just I'm I'm guiding that natural process that you're going to go through anyway. But since I know what the problems are based on my experience, I can help that that guide become more efficient. I can put that attention right where I need it to go. You know, if they do something well I say, good, keep doing that. If they do something bad, what could you have done differently? And then we keep going through that process.
0: Are you big on like uh feedback for your students? Like if you see someone do something, are you good at like, especially again, my gym is mostly like uh, newer students, um, two, three years or less. Um, are you big on giving, like if you see someone do something, are you good on like a uh, good, like good job? That was fantastic. Like, I, I love that. That was a fantastic solution because I know I've met a lot of coaches who are like, yeah, I don't, they're not big on feedback. They're not good on. I
1: mostly positive give positive feedback. I, I rarely give negative feedback. Uh, I always say, good, good. Yes, that's exactly right. Good focus. Way of job. Good effort. It's always positive, 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 positive because I want them focusing on what they're having success with so they keep going in that direction. I'm trying to enhance their inclination to go in the direction that they're having success in. If they reach failure, I always ask a question. Why'd you fall over? Why didn't you get under his elbow? Why did you stop? You know, because I want them to, Oh, I guess I did stop. Well, let me, let me try not to stop. You know what I mean? I just, so again, I don't say, you know, no, that's wrong. You know, cause you know, I, 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 there's more clever ways I can go about talking to them so that they can have an improvement. Just yelling them, you're wrong. You're slow. That's not right. That doesn't help anybody.
0: No. And it's, uh, that's also just more likely to discourage people from wanting to keep doing this activity. I mean, if, like, you know, I, when I first started Jitsu, I trained at a gym where the coach was, uh, how am I going to say this? Not a nice person. Um, you know, like it, there was a lot of like, wow, you really suck at that or you're terrible at this. And it, it does almost make you be like, man, why am I doing this? Like, I know I'm bad. I'm doing something new for the first time. I should be fucking bad at it. If I was good at it, it's not worth doing. But like, could you give me some positive affirmation on the things I am doing well, or at least not doing terrible at, or even like you said, like trying to do well, like, Hey, you didn't have success, but I like that you were trying to do something there. I like, you know, giving that positive feedback. I find that's really good for students, but yeah, this is something I've really struggled with because like I'll watch people, you know, maybe I'll give a task or a, a game and I'm trying to get them to do something and they're just really struggling. Like, uh, trying to think of a good example is like maybe a game from turtle where it's like, Hey, you're just trying to maintain chest to back connection from the top, wherever you roll to partner on bottoms, trying to break the connection, turn to face. Um, and I'll just watch a guy get escaped from like 50 times in a row. And I'm like, he's just not figuring out how to hold on to this guy's back. Well,
1: it's not that he's not figuring it out. It's that you, when you watch him, don't like you use the result to re guide him. You have to ask him why, why are you losing the back? You have to make sure he can, he can sense what's happening. If he can't, he's like, I don't know. Then you can give him a different intention. Maybe it's the connection you started them with. Maybe you started them with open connections rather than closed connections, and that's the difficulty. Okay, look, I see you're having a hard time staying chest back with open connections. Here, I want you to switch it. I want you to start with your hands closed. Try to keep your chest glued to his back the whole time. Go. So you can you can change that initial intention. You can try to load it towards success, right? But you, that's your job. Your job is to give them an initial intention and help them understand. And stay focused on do, performing that intention. That's that's the that's your first job. Um, and then again, once they know that, then we can start student coach feedback. But it's always through discussion: why, what, when, where, never how.
0: Yeah, I noticed you uh, when you were explaining your system; it was basically just questions um, asking people. Questions to get them to try and give you an answer, and then refeed them back. I really like that. That's something I'm definitely going to try and use in my own uh, coaching because I think that's important. Is again, like we said earlier, like I can't really just give you information. I need if I can give you the idea of like guide you towards the information with questions, then you're going to figure it out eventually. Well,
1: well, because there's no answer to give, right? So if, if I say to somebody, uh, "Oh, you need to do it this way," well, what that's going to do is that's going to tell them there's only one way to do it. And then they're going to try to fit all their efforts into that, quote, optimized way. Instead, we have to find something that works for everybody, like some invariant feature. Like we know that uh, putting pressure at the end of levers uh, gives more leverage over manipulation of that lever. So we can just guide their attention to wrists and elbows, for example. And any way that we're able to interact with wrists and elbows to create the outcomes that we're looking for is going to be effective. And so that's what we guide our students toward. So, again, just, just trying to put their... Intention on what they're doing and attention on a space that's going to give them a physically certain outcome is what what our job is. You know, it's not to give them the quote optimized solution. They need to perceive what's happening. They need to understand why things aren't are or are not happening.
0: That's extremely helpful uh, for me, at least as uh, like internalizing that. Um, yeah, I know you're busy. I just got a couple more. I promise, I'll let you get out of here soon. Um, yeah. So just uh, this one's just a quick definition question. I wrote this down. Um, could you? Define the term action capacity and tell me like what the difference is between an action capacity and a skill.
1: Yeah, an action capacity is just a capacity to have take a specific action. So let's say you're a strong guy, right? You have capacity to be strong in a myriad of ways. Okay, uh, flexible. It's, you have a capacity to be flexible. Um, you're fast. Capacity, in simple attributes, right? Capacity to do something and a specific in a specific way, right? In uh, skill, is that what you asked the difference between capacity and skill? Yeah. Yeah, skill is something done with intention. So if I say, okay, I intend to, uh, you know, grab around this guy's waist and lift him up. And I create a bunch of different ways that I can reach them and create that outcome, I I can call that a skill. So skill is directly intent uh, tied to us being able to accomplish our intentions. Capacity is just capacity to work towards those intentions. So like, do you know what I mean? So if my arms are very strong, for example, I might be more organized around, or I might perceive opportunities for using them, uh, as a capacity. So a, a simple way we can think about this, the, the idea of capacity is something like this. There was a study done where they, uh, had a staircase and they asked people, if you were to run up that, do you think you'd be tired? Basically how, how difficult is a staircase to run up people who are fat, just being fat, like they've never ran up and never touched it. We're like, oh, that, that looks pretty hard. I, I might need to warm up before I ran up those stairs. But some guy who maybe was in shape looked at us, oh, those are nothing. I could run up those in a second. So they don't know – so excuse me. The, the way they perceive the difficulty of climbing those stairs is relative to their capacity. Being overweight and not moving much, that, that reduces your capacity to move. So interacting with objects that afford the opportunity for movement might not be inviting to you because – You know, it doesn't match your capacity versus somebody who is is very strong or very fit. uh, When they look at stairs, they looks more inviting to them. So, um, you know, it reflects their capacity. Do you know what I mean?
0: And in that sort of analogy, the skill would be the actual ability to climb the stairs.
1: Correct. Yep. It would be the, the expressed intention.
0: Okay, that that definitely clears up. Just these are some terms, you know. I, as I'm reading the work that you suggested, or the books that I've heard you recommend, or other people, or the studies, I see some of these words. I'm like, I'm not 100 percent sure what's meant by that. And I find a lot of times, again, people who might be you know listening to this podcast and maybe decide they want to learn more about it. Um, like I'll be honest, at least for me, uh, a lot of the terminology and the wording and the definitions were what made this really hard for me because you see a word that maybe I've used colloquially in my life um in a different way or i didn't understand how they meant it in this respect so um it is important like if you do have questions on for people out there if you have questions on like terminology you can reach out to people like greg um there are actually more people starting to do this now um they will help you like uh i know you're here on the podcast which i appreciate but like for people who don't know uh greg was super kind to me at the adcc tournament met him started talking to him right away uh Gave me all the time I needed to talk to him, uh, even as I had to go fight a student uh, and lose. But uh, no, like you people are approachable. And I know um, I'm obviously not as educated on this as you. I'm trying to be. I'm working on it. But like if anyone has questions, you can always message me and I'll answer to the best of my abilities. And if I don't know, I will forward you to someone like Greg who definitely would know the answer. Well, uh,
1: we're not we're not born educated, guys. You have to go educate yourself through interaction with your world. So, if you want to know more about action capacity specifically as it relates to intentionality or skill, read the book, uh, The Athletic Skills Model. Um, it goes into depth on on that topic.
0: Okay, um, I just have one last question, and I'll let you get out of here. Um, I, I know this is going to be maybe a weird one. I know we might go a little in depth on this, so I'm sorry if it takes up too much time, but. Um, For the student, like obviously, we're as coaches. We really get to design our practices. And any coach out there, hopefully, uh, as long as they have some say in the way their classes are structured, um, can design their classes this way. They can use these methods, these tools to build skill. Let's say someone is listening to this podcast and they're a student in a gym um, that uses a traditional IP method. And they go, shit, okay, I love everything I'm hearing. This makes sense to me. How can I, as a student, apply this? And I know... Uh, my first response when someone asked me this was find a better gym. Uh, but for some people, that's not an option. So like, let's say we are in a position where that's not an option or maybe you're a small town. How can a student take this information and apply it to their own training um, without like the coach buying in?
1: Yeah. Okay. So... First is you don't have to listen to your coach. Okay, guys, like there's no rule that says, you know, he's daddy and you have to do everything he says. So if you're at a gym and your coach irritates you or is giving you useless information, just stop listening. Pick at your toes while they're talking. It's no problem. Um, uh, the second thing is, is join a gym where there's a lot of live work. So any gym where you're doing lots of situational sparring, lots of open rounds. Uh, find a gym where there's a lot of open mat time where you can go and use the mats in any way that you want. And so that's the first thing. Okay, we need more opportunities to act. Okay, live with resistance. That's the first thing. And again, you don't have to listen to anybody. Ignore people. Do shit yourself. Um, the second thing is I would try to inform you, inform, try to inform yourself on one of two things: either uh, consume more jiu-jitsu, watch more live matches, watch more competition footage, find you know performers that interest you that do things that interest you. Try to mimic them. Try to copy them. Try to understand why they do what they do and see if you can implement some of those whys um and what's into your practice the other way inform yourself in the science so something that i experienced is when i started learning about direct perception and theories of uh, embodied cognition um and the ecological approach i started to become inspired to look at human movement differently and so what this did is it helped me helped inform me how i could use my practice better i could how i could manipulate my focus of intention and attention to maximize my training time so and to say that more simply um find a way to understand intentionality and attentionality learn how to manipulate it learn what's a good way to manipulate it and what might be suboptimal right learn how to focus your intention and attention basically uh set goals for yourself during practice you know goals deeper than just arm lock uh set goals for the conditions that create the possibility for arm locks right so uh yeah learn about the science inform yourself on on more jiu-jitsu uh find some consistent training partners Find some guys that are willing to work with you that will that will give you the extra time that will play some of these ideas with you that will interact with you as you grow. Uh, these are some ways that you can use your traditional gym to still grow, and uh, what I think to be a more efficient way.
0: That's awesome advice, man. I always tell people, um, you know, a coach is here as a guide, but at the end of the day, like you have to take some responsibility for your own development. You all of,
1: to, it's all on you, buddy.
0: It's yeah, all. like you you have to be responsible for yourself. Like I can. I can leave people to water, but I can't make you drink. Like you got to be willing to put in the work. And if you're a student at a gym, whose coach maybe isn't willing to put in the work, then it's unfortunate, but now it's a little bit more on you to take control of your own training. So for people out there, like if you like this stuff, you know, reach out again, we'll people will give you options, maybe give you advice. Uh, one of the hardest parts when I switched to this was building games, designing task-based games, designing the stuff to build skills. So if you're out there and you're not sure, reach out to people. Uh, I know at least I'd love to help you. Um, as best i can again yeah reach out there are people there are resources um listen to any of other greg's content definitely watch uh is it standard Jiu Jitsu is your the youtube channel for your gym they have some amazing content um i send a couple of your videos uh you have a video critiquing uh other people's games that they've made uh and kind of giving feedback on that i send that to everyone i know who is interested in using this method because i'm like this is a really good way to look at what other people want what other people have designed as a game and use the feedback to kind of uh, as a guideline for how you can design something
1: for sure Um, yeah yeah I think uh, the best way So actually Rob Gray has a, a really good quote that I think ties this all together very well it's not what you do first it's what you do next and I think what that really means is just do anything just do anything try to get better using any method that you can but then adjust adjust as you go along You know what I mean? Because the truth is, is it's constant adjustment. There's no optimization. It's working towards the effects you want to have on your environment and becoming as skillful skillful as possible or becoming as intentional as possible. So, again, it's not what you do first. It's what you do next.
0: Dude, That's perfect. That's such an amazing way to end this, I think. Um, Can you give like a let people know where to find you if they want more information or want to contact you?
1: Yeah, for sure. So as usual, uh, contact me at GD Souders on Instagram. Do not contact me at Standard Jiu-Jitsu. I don't answer emails uh, or messages on that. that, uh, uh, My camera guy runs that. Uh, Do not email me. I'm not even giving you my email. Okay, that's for people who want to become students at my gym. I hate receiving emails from non-students, so don't send them to me. Um, So at GD Souders uh, on IG is where you can contact me and you guys can come visit Standard Jiu-Jitsu in Rockville, Maryland, any time that you would like. So you can look our address up on the website, standardjujitsu.com. All visitors train for free. You can visit for as long as you want or whenever you want. You don't even have to call. Just come in, put your shit on and get to work.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. And uh, I'm sure you'll get some messages from me at some point as I go through this process of trying to improve at this and ask you questions. Um, Yeah. Thank you for coming on. Uh, Anyone who's still listening, uh, leave a comment in the video. Let me know if you like this, if you want more interviews like this. Uh, Again, I can't recommend uh, Greg's stuff enough. Please check it out. Um, Yeah. And thank you. That's it. Awesome. Of
1: course, sir. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Of course, it was good meeting you you and talking to you uh, on this podcast.